A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Sean Cole sitting in for Ira Glass. Late last year, I got some not-so-great health news that kind of scared the hell out of me. Basically, I was diagnosed with mild emphysema, lung disease, and two what they're calling small benign nodules, one on each lung. It's like scar tissue. I'm trying to focus on the words mild, small, and benign. The cause wasn't mysterious. I'd been a daily cigarette smoker for about 35 years. It used to be a pack a day when I was younger, sometimes more. I'd cut it down to maybe a half or a third of that later on. And I'd been meaning to quit for a long time, but I just never tried to. Not really. And now it felt like I had no choice. Which, before I tell you what happened next, I feel like I should explain what a huge change that was going to be. I always say I started smoking when I was 15 and started inhaling when I was 16. Partly, I just wanted to be like the people in the British TV dramas I was watching on PBS, pulling these perfect little white cylinders out of silver cases that snapped shut. I remember I painted an empty metal Band-Aid container light blue and kept my Salem menthols in there, puffing at them in my parents' driveway. In my 30s and 40s, I was the guy in the friend group that always had cigarettes. I'd smoke during the shortest of walks, like from this office to the hotel bar across the street. I'd smoke after a 10-mile training run for a half marathon. You smoke in your car, someone would ask, and I'd say, yeah, that's why I bought it. Whenever I imagined myself stranded in the woods, or like on a life raft in the middle of the ocean, the panic I felt was about not having enough cigarettes with me. So the prospect of stopping for good always felt like trying to strand myself on purpose, like everything in me opposed it. The emphysema diagnosis was in early November. I figured I'd put off quitting till after Christmas, when I didn't have to work for a bit. Whenever I went too long without smoking, my cognition would slow down to where I could barely think. December 28th I'll stop, I told myself and started practically counting down the cigarettes. I recorded voice memos through all of this. This one's from December 21st, a week before quitting day. This is one of the last times I'll be sitting here smoking out the window, looking at the World Trade Tower. And then, I guess, going forward, I'll just, like, sit here and... uh, I don't know, think or something. This is how much of a smoker I was. I didn't even realize that when you don't smoke, you don't have to go and sit by the window. But the thing I'm really here to tell you about is how I was planning to quit. I was going to read a book, kind of the book for people in my situation. It's called Alan Carr's Easy Way to Stop Smoking. You might have heard of it. It's sold millions and millions of copies, pretty famous. A lot of famous people read it and then cavell about it on television. James Spader's a fan. It was so easy. It was so perfect. And it was all because of this book. Ellen DeGeneres. The easy way to stop smoking. Alan Carr wrote it and everybody who reads the book stops. And um, and so I stopped and I'm so glad I quit because I had a monkey on my Ashton Kutcher. Smoking. And the great thing is while you're reading the book, you get to smoke. Like, he tells you when to light up. He's like, all right, light one now. And you're like, absolutely. That part's a big selling point. He insists that you keep smoking while you're reading the book. And then when you finish it, you stop. My method is known as the easy way. This is Alan Carr, recorded back in 2005. 
and it will enable any smoker to quit immediately, permanently, and actually enjoy the process. Before you dismiss my claims, bear in mind that I've been proving them for over 20 years. That's why my book and global network of clinics are so successful. This book is the only thing that's ever given me a shred of hopefulness about stopping smoking. Like it literally always felt impossible in the past. And now here's this guy saying that not only would I be able to do it, but actually be happy about it. That's the true measure of success, Alan Carr says. Not just stopping, but becoming a happy non-smoker. I couldn't imagine being happy not smoking. I couldn't imagine that a bunch of words could get someone to stop feeling an incredibly strong urge. That words alone could make something that seems so impossible actually happen. What type of witchery was afoot here in this book? And all the stories in today's show are about that. People kind of casting spells to try to make people completely change their directions in life in some way. Oh, and you get to listen to me try to quit smoking. Stay with us. Act one, the straw that broke Joe Camel's back. We're actually not sure about that title. There's a couple of others here that we liked. Act one, can I still be a joker and a midnight toker? Or uh, this one, act one, the unbearable lighterlessness of being. Anyway, the book is relatively short and really, really repetitive. He says you have to follow every instruction to the letter. And the way it works, Carr says most people who try to convince you not to smoke will tell you the reasons you shouldn't. Health risks, all the money you spend, whatever. But he says smokers already know all of that. If any of that actually worked, Alan Carr says, you'd have quit by now. Now, what he does instead is the opposite. He names all of the reasons you give for smoking, all the things you like about it or think it's offering you, and he carefully explains why every one of those reasons is bogus. He describes it as a kind of deprogramming, ultimately removing any desire for a cigarette. And a lot of the precepts make a lot of sense. For instance, he says smokers believe that smoking helps them focus and concentrate, but he says they're just kidding themselves. That's just an illusion. All smoking does is remove the distraction of nicotine withdrawal, so you only think it's helping you think better. There are tons of fallacies like that, he says, and smokers perpetuate them without even realizing it. This is from the book. He says, Smokers claim that the cigarette relaxes them and helps them to handle stressful situations, but they also claim that it helps them get going in the morning and that it gives them a boost. How can a drug that relaxes you or relieves stress also stimulate you? This contradiction illustrates the truth about smoking. The cigarette just doesn't do any of the things we tell ourselves it does. I should say he distinguishes easy way from just going cold turkey, or what he calls the willpower method. Those poor souls aren't real non-smokers, he says. They're just smokers who aren't letting themselves smoke. What kind of life is that? Whereas if you have no desire to smoke anymore, you don't need willpower. You also won't be irritable, or depressed, or gain weight, or any of the things that, according to most people, make quitting hard. Also, the reported success rate for willpower alone is really low. It depends on who you ask, but it might be as low as 3 to 5%. Cutting down doesn't work, Alan Carr says, because it just makes every cigarette seem that much more precious. That's why he says to just smoke as you normally would while you read the book. Also, he really wants you to sit with it. How's the taste? What's it really feel like going down into your lungs? And don't even get him started on nicotine replacement therapy. Patches, gum, all that stuff. That's just going to keep you wanting cigarettes. 
and get into arguments on this point, like this one on Sky TV with someone from a smoking cessation charity. It's not nicotine replacement therapy. It's nicotine maintenance. You're actually giving them nicotine, the drug they're addicted to, and that keeps their body craving nicotine. It's absolute nonsense. You are giving them nicotine, but it's stepping them down gradually so that they can come off it. Can you tell me the proved rates of success on nicotine replacement? It's much greater than that's, that's, that's what the adverts say. It's four times greater. Four times greater than what? Four times greater than just using willpower alone. But willpower doesn't work. No, so it's it four times greater than nothing. Well, and if you can... Alan Carr never had any training in psychology or medicine. He says one day he just realized what a con smoking is and took things from there. Started working with individual clients in the early 80s, then group seminars, then the book, and ultimately an organization that operates in more than 50 countries around the world. For my money, his cred was even better than that of a therapist or a psychiatrist. He was a smoker, for about as long as I was, and much heavier, sometimes 100 cigarettes a day. He had tried to quit a lot of times before hitting upon his method, at which point he just stopped on a dime. If only he'd figured it out way sooner. Alan Carr died of lung cancer in 2006. He hadn't been a smoker for about 20 years. I felt this growing excitement as I read the book. It was starting to beat out my fear of quitting. At one point I wrote in a notebook, Alan Carr is right about the taste. It's foul. Smoke felt bad going down my lungs. I think my thinking about smoking has genuinely changed. The night before my final day of smoking, I felt like a kid on Christmas Eve Eve, sort of thrilled and wishing the day would just hurry up and get here already. Alan Carr said this might happen. And the next night, December 27th, I smoked my final cigarette. Sort of a ritual built into the process. For some reason, I wanted to be outside, walking the neighborhood. I smoked it maybe faster than any cigarette ever. Knocked the burning ember off the butt, threw it in somebody's trash can, and said, out loud, Goodbye, cigarettes. And when I woke up the next day, I wanted a cigarette more than I ever remember wanting one first thing in the morning. Which is not what the book says is supposed to happen. I don't know what I did or didn't do or what exactly went wrong, but suddenly the way felt anything but easy. In the book, over and over again, Alan Carr says some version of the actual physical withdrawal from nicotine is a very mild, slightly empty, insecure feeling. It's so mild that most smokers don't even notice it throughout their smoking lives. I've also heard that the physical withdrawal only lasts three days. Or is it a week? Or is it three weeks? And after that, it's merely psychological. I've heard the individual cravings last anywhere from three to five minutes, and then they pass. All I can say is, in my experience, all of this is utter horseshit. I don't even understand the concept of individual cravings. In my case, withdrawal has meant a constant, crazed yearning that varies in tolerability throughout the day. This is how I described it a couple of weeks in. It's like a worldwide itch. Like all of my limbs are phantom limbs. Like I swallowed a live animal much larger than me that promptly died, and now I have to walk around with it inside of me, soul and all. Or. It's like opening all these awful little packages in which there's something I can't see that painfully stings me, and there's no telling how many more I have to open, nor for how long. It is the thing I'm thinking about more than any other thing, and more than all of the other things. This was on January 13th. 
okay, I've had a bunch of snacks and nothing makes it better. Like literally nothing makes it better. Everything makes, everything that I do instead of smoking makes me want to smoke more. This is the worst day that, of the non-smoking that there's been so far. Day, what is it? We're now going into day 17. Uh, I don't fucking know. I, I don't know. Like, they're hard. They're all hard. The thing about thinking something's going to be easy is that when it's ultimately not, it makes it that much harder. Like, yeah, if I can't do it, I must be an idiot. And thinking back on some of the passages in the book, I felt gaslit. Like my lived experience was being questioned. And this is Alan Carr in a British talk show sometime in the early aughts. We talk about these terrible withdrawal things. You say to someone, well, where did it hurt you? Where? Show me. I can say exactly where. January 18th, so like three weeks in, I had this attack. I was on the corner in my neighborhood trying to decide whether to go home or go to the bar. I chose the bar. And my brain was like, oh, we're walking a bunch. Time for a cigarette, huh? And I said, no, we don't do that anymore. And my brain was like, what do you mean? It's, it's time for a cigarette. And I said, no, it's not. And then it's like I was physically punched in the solar plexus with something electric that sent a shock up through my face and head. I screamed. It's crazy. I just literally, like, turned to walk in the other direction. I just went, fuck! Like, fuck! Oh, my fucking God. Well, it better get better at some point. It got worse. I've gained weight, been drinking more. I went a month with no nicotine at all and then gave in and started having a nicotine lozenge here and there. I have about two a day now. Which naturally made me relitigate everything Alan Carr had said. It also made me wonder, like, why wasn't this working for me if it works for so many people? So I started looking for answers. And I stumbled across this podcast that was way more revelatory to me about my addiction than anything in the book. Welcome to the Huberman Lab Podcast, where we discuss science and science-based tools for everyday life. You might be familiar with Andrew Huberman. Andrew Huberman. He's kind of a neuroscience rock star now. Has a lab at Stanford School of Medicine, where he researches neurobiology and ophthalmology. But apart from that, he's made it a personal mission to explain how your brain and body work so you can maybe make better choices. And he has an episode on nicotine, which made me feel like someone had put their hand on my shoulder, looked me in the eye, and said, you, sir, are not insane. Again, Alan Carr's central premise is that all the things smokers like about smoking, that it relaxes us and focuses us and gives us a boost, Carr says that the only thing we're feeling is just the withdrawal going away. But according to Huberman, that's not true at all. Scientists have been studying the brain chemistry of this for years, decades. And just to be super abbreviated about it here, the podcast is two hours long, nicotine juices up your brain with these three chemicals. Dopamine. dopamine. You've heard of dopamine. People think it causes pleasure, but it's also the thing that makes you want pleasure. It motivates you, makes you strive, pursue. Acetylcholine, which I had never heard of, helps you focus, come up with ideas. Plus, this is weird, you have acetylcholine receptors on your muscles, too, which Huberman says could explain why some people feel more physically relaxed on nicotine. And then epinephrine, which you could just call adrenaline. So when Alan Carr says the nicotine itself doesn't give you a boost, 
it gives you a boost. And when you put all of that together... We now have a very clear picture. Reward pathways are turned on. Attention is turned on. Alertness is turned on. You feel better than you felt a few minutes ago. Your blood pressure is up. Your heart rate is up. Your preparedness for thinking is elevated as well. And yet your body is somewhat relaxed. That's a very interesting state of mind and body. Interesting because it's somewhat ideal for cognitive work. Like if you're going to sit down and work on a book or you're going to sit down and try and figure out a hard math problem or you're going to write a letter that's been really challenging for you to write or maybe that you're really excited to write but that you've been you know, slow to get out the door for whatever reason here. I'm talking about my own habits of procrastination. Well, that state of being very alert but your body being relaxed is almost, if not the optimal state for getting mental work done. We're talking about one molecule, nicotine, found in plants like tomatoes and potatoes and the tobacco plant. One molecule that can trigger activation of all the circuits for focus and motivation in one fell swoop. That is remarkable. When I got in touch with Huberman and we sat down for a conversation, he said this stuff was obvious to him the first time he smoked a cigarette. He was 14, same time he had his first cup of black coffee. I thought that was about as good as it gets until I took my first drag off a cigarette. And then I realized, wow, 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 wow. Nicotine just makes everything look a little different. You feel focused and relaxed. I mean, that's a very hard combo for most people to just drop themselves into. Unfortunately, nicotine also has a lot of harmful side effects. It constricts blood flow and cause heart problems. And just to say, the whole second half of the podcast is about how incredibly bad tobacco is for you. Huberman doesn't smoke anymore or use any kind of nicotine. I ran him through some of Alan Carr's claims about nicotine, and he did give me his take on them, although warily. I have to be careful because I don't want to discourage anyone from using a resource like this book that could help them move away from an unhealthy practice. Sure, um, sure. So I don't want to undermine his, his efforts because I think that the effort is a noble and important one, but... He says Alan Carr's right that you can get so dependent on nicotine that you don't derive any benefit anymore and just smoke so you can feel normal. That can happen with any addictive drug. But he says there are tons of studies supporting the idea that nicotine helps with focus. And no, it doesn't curb your stress, but it might make you better able to handle stress because you're more keyed up and vigilant. So if the central premise of the book is flawed and nicotine can do all of these enjoyable, useful things, why do you think, if you were to conjecture... Would this system that didn't work for me, per se, work for so many people um, when, you know, you know, like... I was thinking about that. I, I think I know why. So from a neurobiologist, I look at everything through the lens of biology. Um, right. You know, much to the discomfort of, of people close <laughs> to me. Um, but I can say that the book did a very interesting thing. I have to give him credit. What he did is he tried to bypass all all the deeper biology of dopamine, acetylcholine, addiction, et cetera. And what he did was he said, you've got a forebrain. Your forebrain can tell itself stories. By telling itself stories, you can set context. So let's tell yourself a story. And the story is this. Withdrawal doesn't really exist or it exists, but 
you know, nicotine. It's not that bad. The biology of nicotine doesn't really exist. Yeah. And when you feel uncomfortable, that's. In other words, he used the lack of knowledge about the way it really works in the reader to trick the reader into tricking themselves into bypassing what would potentially be a much more complicated process. Now, for yeah. some people, and apparently celebrities, it worked for them. But what if I came along with just the tiniest bit of knowledge to the contrary? Or what if someone like you has an experience to the contrary? Well, then, bam, you're right back in square one. I guess it just doesn't work for me. Or there's something wrong with me. Something wrong with me. That's what I've been feeling like. And that's sort of endemic to the method. Like, if it doesn't work, it's because you didn't follow all of the instructions. Or you didn't understand part of it. Read it again. Or call us. Or attend the live seminar. In one edition of the book, Alan Carr writes that if you're thinking I'm still craving cigarettes after reading it, then quote, you are being very stupid. How can you claim I want to be a non-smoker and then say I want a cigarette? That's a contradiction. If you say I want a cigarette, you're saying I want to be a smoker. Non-smokers don't want to smoke cigarettes. You already know what you really want to be, so stop punishing yourself. Having this information, knowing what nicotine was and is no longer doing to me, was comforting because I was like, it's not in my imagination. I wish I'd known all this before I'd stopped, that I'd had more of a map of the landscape instead of just pretending I wasn't even on the continent. This was March 31st, the day after I talked with Huberman. It's three months in. I've been trying to get dressed for like, I don't know, like 10 or 15 minutes. I'm like, everything's just a little bit harder. Since I stopped smoking, I'm like slower. I'm slower and I'll forget. I mean, uh, supposedly it's good for nicotine is good for working memory. Meaning like, why, why, why did I come into the kitchen again? Oh yeah. Uh, and, and I've, I've like no working memory anymore. And so it takes me forever to do simple things. And they're not as fun. That's not the word for getting dressed, but they're not. It's like, it just feels like, everything feels a little bit like a chore. Oh, goodness. There have been lots of news stories about Alan Carr's easy way. He was interviewed a ton in the UK when he was alive. And the people who took over the organization after him have done a lot of press. But looking high and low, I hadn't seen anyone question the scientific accuracy of the method, even though most of the biology Huberman talks about has been known for a little while. So either I'm missing something, which happens a lot, or nobody's ever raised this particular issue with them before. So you'll be there. I did actually for you a couple of Oh, that's kind. Thank you. Um... So I sat down with John Dicey, Alan Carr's successor. He's the global CEO and senior facilitator of Easy Way now. He also took the seminar himself to quit smoking and says he was so enthralled by how well it worked that he, quote-unquote, hassled and harangued Alan Carr to let him get involved. They butted heads sometimes, but John really considers Carr to be a genius. I asked him if they'd ever talked about brain chemistry when Carr was alive. He said they had, although... He wasn't 
really interested in the science side. I mean, he wasn't. No, I think he. Uh, neither am I really. really? I mean, I've got to say, it's 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 one of those things. Um, don't really think it has much um, to bring to the table, if that makes sense. Because mm-hmm. you know, he talked. He he would say that he was like the world's leading expert on quitting smoking. Yes. Uh, you're smiling as I say that. Um, so he, he wouldn't like sort of, as the world's leading expert in quitting, sort of self-professed world's leading expert in quitting smoking, be be necessarily curious about that stuff. Yeah, I think he was busy doing other things. Right. So in terms of um, the easy wing method, um, it's now being applied to I think it's 15 or 16 different addictions or issues. There's the easy way to stop drinking, the easy way, W-E-I-G-H, to lose weight. There's one about being addicted to your phone, lots of things. I should say, an updated version of the book, different from the one I read, addresses brain science for the first time, but it's very selective. And it still claims nobody's ever had any pleasure or benefit from nicotine. I started taking John Dicey through what I'd learned from Andrew Huberman, the research that contradicts what's in the book and that might help explain why, for a lot of people, it's not going to be easy to walk away from smoking. So when the book says that it, that it doesn't physically aid in concentration, just scientifically it does aid in concentration. It, he's wrong. You think he's wrong? I don't think he's wrong. I know he's wrong. He's a neurobiologist. I don't care what he is. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm not being disrespectful yeah, to him. No, sure. He has a theory... He's, he's well, it's theory, based on, you know, I mean, it's based on... It's just wrong. Tests. On many levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm struggling to understand why there's a desperation to prove or, or believe that nicotine does something mm-hmm. when it doesn't. You know, I've, I've never heard so much nonsense in my life. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Very nice guy, I'm sure. And I'm sure he believes what he's saying. But it's absolute nonsense. I think that's where we're misunderstanding each other because I'm not looking for positives of nicotine. I, I was just looking for, like, what what is the mechanism? I was just, like, looking mm. for what is the mechanism. And when I learned about the different neurochemicals that, that nicotine evokes in the brain, um, it just felt like that the method was predicated on a lie. That, like, so your, that nicotine, your feeling is that you would you'll take nicotine for the rest of your life? N- no, although... Anna, Why not? Huh? Why not? Uh, well, it wasn't my plan. It wasn't my plan because... Uh, Why isn't your plan? Why isn't your plan if it's giving you these tremendous benefits, that you, you, you struggle without it, why, why wouldn't you just take it for the rest of your life? I think because there are health detriments. They're nothing like... Smoking, Things got spicy like, with John Dicey. Uh, you know, as you get older, well, he emailed me more than once, older, weeks after the fact, to say he was still reeling from the interview. Doesn't understand why anyone would push back at the Alan Carr Easy Way method. We've only ever done good in the world, he said. That's like kicking a cat. And why would anyone ever suggest there was a benefit to nicotine, other than maybe the tobacco companies or big pharma? If it was true, mm-hmm. I could almost live with that. If nicotine did make it easier for people to concentrate, non-nicotine addicts to concentrate, mm-hmm. I could live with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm genuinely interested in looking at the studies you've looked at if there were advantages to it, I'd certainly acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. Um, but but there aren't. It's just. I guess how can you say there aren't when you say that you haven't looked at the science when that that it's just not and that's fine that it's not interesting to you. Mm. But when it's not interesting to you and so you haven't really read about it and Alan didn't really read about it, mm. then how then how can you say it's not true? It's just it's irrelevant, isn't it? Mm. I don't know. I, do, uh, I wouldn't want to spend too much time 
discussing whether the moon's made out of cheese. I'm pretty sure it isn't. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I think the you know it's hugely dangerous to talk about. You know, um, that there might be um, benefits to nicotine when it's just simply not true. It's unfortunate the book didn't work for you, and I'm I'm really sorry about that. And I I wish you'd reached out for help at the time um, because it doesn't have to be this complicated. It really doesn't. You know, I'm really pleased you're not smoking and I hope you're as well as you can be with the uh, prognosis yeah, and everything like thank that. thank you. Um, you know, if you think this understanding has helped you continue not smoking, that's brilliant. But are you, are you, are you, are you, are you well? Are you, you sort of Thank you for asking. A... I, um, I think I'm okay. So basically, uh, they say that the emphysema is... John Dicey says the organization doesn't make any claims about the success rate of the book. For any measurable success, they always point to the seminar they give, which Alan Carr always said was about 90% effective. He based that figure on only about 10% of seminar goers taking advantage of the money-back guarantee. In order to get your money back, you have to do the session two additional times, for free. Anyway, the company's backed off from that claim in recent years. The seminar was put through a couple of randomized controlled trials where it was pitted against methods that offer both behavioral support and pharmacology, nicotine replacement, that kind of thing. The more recent and bigger of those studies found that 19% of the Alan Carr people were still quit after six months versus 15% of the other group. With the margin of error, that basically means they're on par. Although 19% success still means that the method didn't work for four out of five people in the study. John Dicey told me he doesn't think those studies are a good reflection of what the results are out in the real world. I'm literally <laughs> looking through my kitchen window watching police officers smoke on the fire escape of the precinct. This is four months in. You know, kind of wherever you look, wherever you smell, there it is. Uh, your past. It's like you broke up with someone who was horrible for you, and then you leave your apartment, and that person is on every street corner wafting their perfume at you, which was and remains intoxicating, literally. And then you go back to the confines of your apartment and you look out the window and there they are, blowing kisses at a brick wall. Now I can't tell whether I'm talking about the metaphor or the physical reality. I actually may have stumbled into a really good, though kind of worrying explanation as to why I'm not in the percentile, whatever it is, of Alan Carr's success stories. I talked with a prominent psychiatrist who's had patients that use the method, so she's familiar with the book. Her name's Anna Lemke. 
She runs the Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic at Stanford. She also wrote a book called Dopamine Nation, which is where I learned that nicotine increases dopamine levels by 150%, which is 50% more than sex. I called her to talk science, but our conversation became a little like a therapy session at some points. Like, I told her there's this thing that happens in the shower when I first turn the water cold at the end. Makes you feel good after, not during. And weirdly, I don't just crave a cigarette right at that moment. It's this very specific sensation, like I'm taking a big whiff from a glass ashtray that I just emptied but haven't washed out yet. It's not a gross feeling. It's a wanting feeling. Does it happen immediately when you turn the cl- feel first feel the pain of the cold water? Yes. Okay, so that's very interesting. There, um, there's a whole famous series of experiments showing. She told me there were these studies done where they would take a rodent and get it addicted to some drug by letting it press a lever over and over again to receive that drug. But then, if you take the drug out of the equation, it'll eventually stop hitting the button because. What's the point? And then it wanders off to do other things in the cage to amuse itself. However, if then you take that same animal and you expose it to a painful foot shock, the animal will immediately run over to the lever and wildly start pressing it as a way to... Yeah, isn't that interesting? So I suspect that that is what is happening to you, that by having cold water um, showers... What you're doing is you're shocking your body with a painful stimulus, which is then triggering your automatic neurological safety and compensatory mechanism, which is to smoke a cigarette. Whoa. That's wild. Wow. Yeah, yeah. In other words, you know, you've created an elaborate neurological circuit around smoking, And even months after you've stopped smoking, that neurological circuit is still healthy and firing away in response to significant stressors. People talk about the the physical addiction to nicotine and the psychological addiction to nicotine like that. That sounds physical to me that I mean, it's. Oh, yeah, it's very physical. All this time, I'd been focusing on the damage that smoking had done to my lungs. 35 years worth of damage. I somehow hadn't thought in terms of doing that amount of damage to my brain, too. That'll take a long time to repair, Anna Lemke told me, especially given my age. My brain isn't as plastic as it once was. And there's another school of thought, she said, a more depressing one, which wonders whether the damage could be so far gone I can't repair it. It'll always be in this kind of state of perpetual neurological withdrawal, which might require some kind of intervention. And in your case, that might look something like nicotine replacement therapies for life, potentially for life. high... For what, life? What's that? For life? Yeah, for life, and potentially at higher doses than what you're currently taking. Huh. Wow. So, yeah, so we used to use nicotine replacement therapy just to help people quit, but more and more we're now using them in the maintenance phase where people are just using them for years to decades. Um, And again, the thinking there is that, wow, you know, the, the ideal is that with sustained abstinence, your brain would heal and you would return to whatever your pre-smoking baseline was. But in reality, what we see is that some people don't get to that place 
and that they may need some form of nicotine to feel and function okay um, going forward indefinitely. Whoa. So it's possible that I've broken my my brain, sort of, my, my, my dopamine receptors to the point where, like, they're just not going to return to normal, kind of. Yeah. I mean, that that's that's possible. I mean, I don't like to say that your brain is broken, but I guess just to think about it a little differently, it just could be that you no longer have the brain plasticity to completely reverse the changes. I had to listen back to that part of the interview a few times to fully feel the bomb drop of it. I know it's not an official diagnosis or anything, or even an unofficial one. I don't want to overreact. But the impact is something like when I learned I have lung disease. Permanent brain changes and lack of plasticity makes me think of aging, which makes me think of dying. Nicotine replacement for life, for the rest of my life. How long is that going to be? And still, even assessing all of that damage, knowing all the havoc that smoking has wreaked on my body, still, I wish there was some dimension in which I could keep doing it. If you're wondering, it's now been seven months and I still haven't smoked a cigarette. Every now and then I almost wake up to it all over again. Like, I'm still not doing that? Talking with Anna Lemke confirmed this idea that had been pecking at me since I first read the book. Alan Carr says there's only one kind of smoker, and that any smoker can find it easy to quit. But I talked with a lot of people who had tried the method, folks it both worked for and didn't. And I just think there's different kinds of smokers. I think there's a certain kind of smoker, like me, for whom there's just a lot of anger lurking in it. It's like every hour, or a couple of hours, we climb up to the roof and fling ourselves off of it as a petulant fuck you to being alive. After all, we started doing this thing when we were kids. Like 15, 16. No wonder there's such a delicious nihilism to it for some of us. It's like my 15-year-old fingers were still lifting the cigarette up to my 51-year-old lips. I can't think of a lot of other behaviors that aren't associated with survival, but it's even the opposite of survival, that I did every day for that long. There's a line in one of the editions of the book I have where Alan Carr writes, if health, happiness, and freedom aren't enough to inspire you, then you have bigger problems than smoking. I underlined that passage, and in the margin, I wrote, this is possible. Coming up, when you wish you knew how and whether to quit someone, and then you receive possibly the most well-articulated relationship advice of all time. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio, when our program continues. It's This American Life. I'm Sean Cole, sitting in for Ira Glass. Today's program, I Can't Quit You, Baby. Stories of being on the verge of a big change, not wanting to let go, and the people who give you that final push. We now present Act 2 of our program, Act 2, A Spoonful of Sugar. When we were putting together this week's show, one of the other producers here thought of this advice column she read years ago, where the person writing in wasn't sure if they should quit a relationship or not. It was the column Cheryl Strayed used to do, called Dear Sugar. Here's the letter. Dear Sugar, I'm in my early 20s. I've been in a serious relationship with the same guy for six years, on and off. The off portion taking place when I was younger. 
I have been very distracted and have been second-guessing the relationship for a while now, but I can't come to grips with losing this person that seems to be right for me permanently. And of course, I don't want to break his heart. Then again, I don't want to settle and have regrets later in life. I feel like we want different things out of life and we have different interests, but I just can't decide. I've talked to him about my feelings for the record, but to no avail. We went on this little break, but God knows breaks never work. Basically, my biggest fear is being alone and never finding anyone that measures up. It doesn't help that my closest friends are settling down with their boyfriends and are talking about marriage. Cringe. Honestly, I feel like marriage and that kind of commitment represents a loss of personal identity. I'm not sure why. But I would love your advice, sugar. Please help. Sincerely, scared and confused. Here's Cheryl Strayed, reading her response. Dear Scared and Confused, I lived in London when I was 20. I was technically homeless and desperately broke, but I didn't have the papers an American needs to get a job in London. So I spent most of my time walking the streets, searching for coins that people had dropped. One day, when I was searching for coins, a man in a business suit approached and asked me if I wanted an under-the-table job three days a week at a major accounting firm that has since collapsed due to corruption. Sure, I said. And this is how I became Coffee Girl 123. Coffee Girl was my actual job title. The 123 was tacked on to communicate the fact that I was responsible for providing coffee and tea to all the accountants and secretaries who worked on the first three floors of the building. It was a harder job than you might think. Coffee Girl men would call as I passed them with my tray, often snapping their fingers to draw my attention their way. I wore a black skirt over white tights and a black vest over a white shirt, and I was almost always out of breath. Banned from the elevator, I had to race up and down steps in a stairwell that ran along the back of the building to get from one floor to the next. That stairwell was my sanctuary, the only place where nobody snapped their fingers and called me coffee girl. During my breaks, I'd walk down to the first floor and go outside and sit on a patch of concrete that edged the building that housed the major accounting firm that has since collapsed due to corruption. One day while I was sitting there, an old woman came along and asked me where in America I was from. I told her, and she said that years before, she'd visited the place in America where I'm from. We had a nice conversation. And each day after that, she came along during the time when I was sitting on the patch of concrete, and we talked. She wasn't the only person who came to talk to me. I was in love with someone at the time. In fact, I was married to that someone, and I was in way over my head. At night after I made love to this man, I would lie beside him and cry because I knew that I loved him, but that I couldn't bear to stay with him because I wasn't ready to love only one person yet. And I knew that if I left him, I would die of a broken heart, and I would kill him of a broken heart too. And it would be over for me when it came to love, because there would never be another person who I'd love as much as I loved him, or who loved me as much as he loved me, or who was as sweet and sexy and cool and compassionate and good through and through. So I stayed.
We looked for coins on the streets of London together. And sometimes he would come and visit me at the major accounting firm that has since collapsed due to corruption while I was on my breaks. One day, he came while the old woman was there. The man I love and the old woman had never come at the same time, but I had told him about her, and I had told her about him too. Is this your husband? The old woman exclaimed with jubilant recognition when he walked up. She shook his hand with both of her hands, and they chatted for a few minutes, and then she left. The man I loved was silent for a good while, giving the old woman time to walk away. And then he looked at me and said with some astonishment, She has a bundle on her head. She has a bundle on her head, I said. She has a bundle on her head, he said back. And then we laughed and laughed and laughed, so hard it might to this day still be the time I laughed the hardest. He was right. He was right. That old woman all that time, all through the conversations we'd had as I sat on the concrete patch, had had an enormous bundle on her head. She appeared perfectly normal in every way but this one. She wore an impossible three-foot tower of ratty old rags and ripped-up blankets and towels on top of her head, held there by a complicated system of ropes tied beneath her chin and fastened to loops on the shoulders of her raincoat. It was a bizarre sight, but in all my conversations with my husband about the old woman, I'd never mentioned it. She has a bundle on her head, we shrieked to each other through our laughter on the patch of concrete that day. But before long, I wasn't laughing anymore. I was crying. I cried and cried and cried as hard as I'd laughed. I cried so hard I didn't go back to work. My job as Coffee Girl 123 ended right then and there. Why are you crying? asked my husband as he held me. Because I'm hungry, I said, but it wasn't true. It was true that I was hungry. During that time, we never had enough money or enough food, but it wasn't the reason I was crying. I was crying because there was a bundle on the old woman's head, and I hadn't been able to say that there was, and because I knew that that was somehow connected to the fact that I didn't want to stay with the man I loved anymore, but I couldn't bring myself to acknowledge what was so very obvious and so very true. That was such a long time ago, scared and confused, but it all came back when I read your letter. It made me think that perhaps that moment delivered me here to say this to you. You have a bundle on your head, sweet pea. And though that bundle may be impossible for you to see right now, it's entirely visible to me. You aren't torn. You're only just afraid. You no longer wish to be in a relationship with your lover even though he's a great guy. Fear of being alone is not a good reason to stay. Leaving this man you've been with for six years won't be easy, but you'll be okay, and so will he. The end of your relationship with him will likely also mark the end of an era of your life. In moving into this next era, there are going to be things you lose and things you gain. Trust yourself. It's sugar's golden rule. Trusting yourself means living out what you already know to be true. Yours, sugar.
when that producer brought it up at the weekly story meeting, someone else said that she had read the same column and that it was what made her decide to divorce her husband. Said the same thing happened with a friend of hers, read the column, left the relationship. This is what I'm talking about, about a kind of spell being cast. Cheryl told us that of all of the thousands of letters she's gotten in the 13 years she's had the column, this is the most common predicament people find themselves in. All over the world, people are wondering, is it time to get out? Something like a third of all of her letter writers ask her this question. An adaptation of some of Cheryl Strait's columns is now streaming on Hulu. It's called Tiny Beautiful Things. Our audio version of this column was produced by Diane Wu. Act three, tender resignation. Sometimes the words that convince someone to quit a thing aren't like advice, aren't supportive, but they're just as effective in getting you to let go. Maybe more so. This next story is a case like that. It's from producer Zoe Chase. To start this next quitting story, I have to take you back a few months to November 2022, election night. We ran a story about an election administrator. Lots of people with that job have quit in the last few years because of harassment and death threats from people who believe the last election or last elections were stolen. Not this guy, not Hyder Garcia in Tarrant County, Texas, home of Fort Worth. He'd never be driven out by conspiracy theorists, In fact, he'd figured out, it seemed, this rare way to work with them, to invite them in. One One example. During one election, one of the activists came in to where the votes are tallied. And this activist was like, if I were in charge, I would make the walls glass so you could see the election machines and where every cable goes. Hyder was like, okay, I hear you. So I told him, what about if we rearrange the room? So the machines are not like in this little cabinet under the desk, but up where you can see them. And you can, he said, well, maybe that would be a start. So the next election, they came back in a runoff. You know, when they walked in the room, I told them, all the machines are on top of the tables. You can see the back. They're against the glass. They're labeled what each one of them does. This is what you wanted, right? And so he had that moment of, okay, well, you got me on that one. Um, And it's little things like that that we keep doing, right? Heider gave out his cell phone to anyone who wanted it. There was this one activist in particular, Aubrey Campbell. She had this channel on Telegram about election fraud stuff. And she posted about Hyder a lot. And she called him all the time. She called him on election day. Um, so there's a picture going around, and it's, and it, and it's purported to be a, a map of outages of all of the um, machines. Is that, are you having issues with that? I'm going to send it to you to, uh, just so you see what this is. Gonna all right. Know. Yeah, send it to me. I'll take a look, see what it is. Please, that'd be great. Yeah, I, I he and Aubrey had built up a real relationship, even though they didn't agree on anything. She came by on election night to hang out and watch everything and ask more questions. It really seemed to me like nothing could deter him from this job. The reporter who brought us Hyder's story, Natalia Contreras, she talks about Hyder's radical patience with the election conspiracists who used to fill his office. And election administrators in the rest of the country looked to Hyder as a model for transparency, openness, efficiency. The Secretary of State of Texas back then, not a Democrat, a very conservative guy, said to Natalia last year, if you were building a prototype for an elections administrator, you would just copy Hyder Garcia. But on April 16th, 2023, 
Haider released a letter. It begins, Gentlemen, please accept this letter as my formal resignation from the position as election administrator for Tarrant County. Five months after we ran that story, Haider had quit. Some people in the county were pretty upset. They spoke up at this public meeting. One of the people was Aubrey, a voter fraud activist who was always questioning him. Um, I was also shocked at Hyder's resignation. I've been working with him. He is transparent. I want to give him that credit. It is a loss because uh, he's built these systems and he knows more about these computerized voting systems than most people on this planet. I don't think it's necessarily a win for the movement or for Tarrant County. So what happened? Heider wouldn't talk about it for this story, citing his new job. He's on this federal election advisory committee now. But here's what we figured out, and a lot of this is based on Natalia's reporting for VoteBeat. It actually all started the night we were down there, election night. One of the elections Heider was overseeing was for who would be his new boss, a position called county judge, the guy who would be in charge of Tarrant County. The winner was a man named Tim O'Hare. He heavily featured election fraud issues in his campaign, claiming that voter fraud is rampant. It is not. That the 2020 election was possibly stolen from Trump. It was not. Hyder had dealt with scores of election skeptics, but now one was his boss. One of the first things Tim O'Hare did when he got into office a few months ago was set up an election integrity task force, like he'd promised during his campaign, to investigate election crimes. There was a big press conference. We encourage everyone to report actions that they have concerns about, whether it's at the voting booth, whether it is... Hayter was not consulted about the task force. And when the task force was announced, he was not there. A reporter asked if Hayter was part of the task force. The task force is made up of investigators and deputies. So he is. I, I fully expect him to cooperate with it but he's not part of the task force, per se. It's worth mentioning, even if you believe there is a major problem with voter fraud, which lots of officials in Texas do, Tarrant County got a special shout-out in the big 2020 election audit that Texas did for running its election so smoothly. A, quote, quality, transparent election. That was Hyder. So the Election Integrity Task Force was one thing. They also fought over the budget. Money had been approved for Hyder to buy an expensive attachment for a mail sorting machine. But O'Hare wouldn't vote to release the funds for it. There was an awkward back and forth at a public meeting with O'Hare questioning him, like, why was this necessary? Is there, is there some other way that it's going to save money? Because that's not saving money. No. Okay. No, that, this is not an investment to save money. This is an investment to make a labor Did you not say earlier that you thought it would save money? No, no, no. I said, I don't even think that I can come up with a number to save money. We're never going to get $150,000 back in year one. That, that's not what I'm here to. It's an investment in a cleaner, smoother, more efficient operation, but it's not a case of saving money. I think this is a total waste. Okay. This was a real change for Hyder, the golden boy of Texas elections. To a certain degree, what made Tarrant County elections so secure, efficient, and transparent was the pricey election equipment. So Hyder was accustomed to getting his requests approved. Hyder's previous boss, a Republican, once told VoteBeat, if Garcia tells us he needs something, then we're going to get it for him. 
around this time, Hyder and Tim O'Hare met in his office, where things clearly did not go well. Hyder mentioned it at the end of his resignation letter. It ends, Judge O'Hare, my formula to administer a quality, transparent election stands on respect and zero politics. Compromising on those values is not an option for me. You made it clear in our last meeting that your formula is different, thus my decision to leave. I wish you the best. Tarrant County deserves that you find success. I reached out to Tim O'Hare. He didn't respond. But one thing that came out later, on a radio show that O'Hare was on, was he didn't like the way Hyder talked to reporters. At all. That seems like a central problem he had with Hyder. He said someone had given him a public records request of Hyder's communications, and he didn't like what he saw in his texts with the press. Funny. That was my favorite thing about Hyder. So it was one guy that got Hyder to go, after dealing with countless voter fraud activists over the years. Hyder and Tim O'Hare had a meeting, and then Hyder quit. Or you could say it was more than one guy. O'Hare had been put in office by the voters in an election that Hyder had made sure was fair. Hyder's last day was Friday, May 19th. Aubrey gave Hyder a copy of the Federalist Papers. She inscribed it, Thank you for your assistance with my current understanding of Texas election procedures. Please take time to relax, and I hope you enjoy perusing these early writings of the Founding Fathers. When we drove away from Hyder's office that election night in 2022, I felt like we had witnessed this little scene that could be a model for how elections offices could be in the election conspiracy era, where the administrators and the skeptics would be able to, if not agree, at least coexist through elections. Hyder running around making sure his workers were getting what they needed, while all night long this one woman in a red, white, and blue dress followed the ballot bags around with a clipboard, taking notes. It felt oddly peaceful, stable. I was kind of optimistic. Yeah, no. Six months later, I don't see it that way. Zoe Chase is one of the producers of our show. program was produced today by Aviva de Kornfeld. The people who put together today's show include Jane Ackerman, Bim Adewunmi, James Bennett II, Via Benin, Chris Benderev, Jendai Bonds, Michael Kamate, Valerie Kipnis, Mickey Meek, Catherine Raimondo, Stone Nelson, Sarah Parrish, Nadia Raymond, Lily Sullivan, Francis Swanson, Christopher Swatala, Matt Tierney, and Julie Whitaker. Our managing editor is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior editor is David Kestenbaum. Our executive editor is Emmanuel Berry. Special thanks today to Nikki Glazer, Jennifer White, William Georgiades, Anthony Perullo, Vicki Merrick, Ben Bianchini, Aditya Mukherjee, Grace McCants, Julie Snyder, Rob Moore, Gary Hall, Jamie Knapp, and Miranda Suarez. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, our website, thisamericanlife.org, where we have all this new merch, great new t-shirts, lots of stuff. Um, there's a beautiful illustration of our show's co-founder, Tori Malatia, on one of the shirts. Go check it out, thisamericanlife.org. Thanks, as always, to my boss, Ira Glass. He was in the park the other day, and he jumped into this uh, double Dutch routine with some kids. It's like, left, right, cross, turn. It was a natural. Killed it. 
and very proud of himself. I mean, that's a very hard combo for most people to just drop themselves into. I'm Sean Cole, back next week with more stories of this American life. <laughs>